Guys, I think we'll kick off. How you doing? My name's Kevin Rooney and I'm a member of the Education Forum. So welcome to uh, this debate tonight. The debate tonight is uh, called The Education Culture Wars. What should be the rule of schools today? Question mark. How values and expectations of schools are becoming more political and more contested? Question mark. But guys, um, this is part of the Battle of Ideas conference. This is a satellite from the event that happened at the Barbican two and a half weeks ago when we had nearly 3,000 people at 90 odd debates. And so the Education Forum is attached to the Battle of Ideas and the Battle of Ideas is about two dozen satellites events happening throughout England and Europe over the next couple of weeks and this is, this is one of them. So I'm delighted to announce uh, Joanna, or introduce Joanna, Joanna Williams, who will speak for about 20, 25 minutes on this particular topic. Guys, um, just on the spirit of the debate that Joanna is going to launch with her um, talk, and then there'll be plenty of time for question and answers and disagreements, can I just tell you about my last week at my school for for literally two and a half minutes max, if maybe even less? And it's a way of trying to set up this discussion. So it starts in reverse order. I'm going down on the Piccadilly line tonight from my North London school, and I'm reading the uh, this week's TS, this week's Times Educational Supplement. And uh, so this is the fella in a big major article, which is bigged up at the introduction to the TES, Times Educational Supplement. He says, uh, we need to ask ourselves the question, what is the purpose of education? And I ask myself that all the time. I absolutely do. And this is, this is, the, this is what he says in answer to it. Every student, every teacher, every chief executive of multi-academy trust knows that we need to be doing more to help save the planet. So there you have it. You know, the purpose of education for this guy in this week's TES is saving the planet, and that's what schools should be for, and that's what education should be for. So that's the first wee thing, right? And um, maybe you're looking a bit blank on what's that fella talking about. I'm going to try and knit these things together for you. On that same article, um, the demand from this person is that every school um, should campaign against beef consumption and we should have meat-free days and we should have paperless schools and all homework should be submitted online, etc., etc. And he's been on the Ofsted now and he wants Ofsted to check schools and judge them on their sustainability goals and so on and so forth. And Ofsted have responded and said, yes, that is part of our criteria for judging the school. So there's one purpose of education, right? Then you go on, is that us engaging in teaching or is that advocacy? Well, we've just said, right, this is our position, that's what you'd be doing. And then here's my last thing. One of my best friends, Sam Samantha, she's the head of history. Uh, sorry, she's the head of English. She's a black woman. And she's telling me on Wednesday her and her deputy head are going down to Friends Meeting House for a meeting with the exam board. Uh, about introducing a new A-level um, uh, called Diversity in Literature and Poetry. Diversity in Literature, Literature and Poetry, which is the whole uh, new A-level, with a with a onus on trying to make it more friendly towards ethnic minority students. Now, those five things that I said might be utterly irrelevant to you, but I think they're interesting to tell us something about what's going on in English education today. Things are shifting and changing, and there, there doesn't seem to be any sort of consensus on what we think a school or education is for. 
This is why we've invited this woman along. We want to hear her take on it. And when she finishes, we want to hear your take. And we want to have an, a really interesting conversation. Is there a culture war going on in English education? Or is it a figment of our imagination? Question mark. Without further ado, Joanna, you're very welcome. Thank you, Kevin. I always find it really hard to live up to your introductions to me. <clears throat> I'll do my best. Um, so we're talking about the idea of a school um, on the front line, if you like, as an institution um, in the culture wars. Um, I've been thinking about this for a while and people who've been along to the battle of ideas and who've been coming along to the education forum debates, I'm sure you've all been thinking about it for a while too, uh, partly in the context of sex and relationships education, I guess has been the, the main way in which I've been thinking about this. Um, so... I guess this evening, what I'm doing is summarising, if you like, where I'm at uh, in thinking about all of this now. But at the same time, I don't feel as if I've necessarily got it all worked out. And there's a number of issues I'll, I'll throw out this evening that I'd be very keen to get people's take on. I, I don't think I have a definitive answer to everything that's going on just yet. Uh, so do keep a note of... of anything where you disagree or you think I'm, I'm not quite right because I'm really open to hearing it. But I want to kick off just by really thinking of the school part of, of the equation that we're discussing this evening and, and the school as a, as a social institution uh, whose primary goal obviously is, well I say obviously, you know, I'm questioning, I'm saying obviously, clearly not everyone is saying obviously, um, an institution, a social institution whose primary goal suddenly was and perhaps still is education, although I think perhaps the difference is that not everyone agrees what education means nowadays. Um, and I think what I want to do is, is kind of problematise what we mean by school at the beginning because I don't think there's anything inherent to the project of education that means it has to take place in schools as we understand them today. If you think it's a very arbitrary structure to take 100, 200 children who perhaps the only thing they have in common is the fact that they were born in the same 12-month period and then to bring them all into the one physical building for six, seven hours a day, further divide them down into groups of 30 um, and get them to change where they go on the hour, every hour, um, five or six times over the course of the day. I don't think there's anything inherent in the project of education that means it has to take that form. This is something that, that we as a society and as a, a collective have over more than a century, centuries now, devised and created this social institution of the school. And if you think about it, it the school then as this social institution becomes the place where children are separated, essentially, from their families, are taken out of the, the family structure, perhaps even out of the community structure, and put into this institution <coughs> um, with other children and with adults who they have no biological relationship with. And I think because the school is set up in this way, I think schools have always played um, a role, a social role, as well as an educational role. Uh, so there have always been particular attributes that schools have sought to develop in children, 
perhaps sometimes accidentally, sometimes as a byproduct of education, sometimes more consciously of, uh, than others. And I'm sure you can think from your own experience, um, faith schools, for example, perhaps have a very explicit set of values and a very explicit socialising role that they're playing. Other schools, perhaps that's been a bit more of a, a below-the-surface process. I'm not so much on about today now, but I'm thinking more in historical context. But I think the idea of a school as a social institution that brings children out of the family, puts them in this very unique context. I mean, certainly you can't imagine any place as an adult where you would go and spend time just with people where the only thing you had in common was being born in the same 12-month period. It's very unusual um, structure. Um, but schools, I think, have always then played this, this socialising role above and beyond education, um, kind of training, if you like, perhaps for want of a better word, our children how to exist in a particular form of society. And I think the the values or the attributes that were nurtured in children, like I said, perhaps, perhaps explicitly, perhaps implicitly, if you think of things like obedience, um, respect for authority, discipline, perhaps self-discipline, um, the, the kind of the drilling of, of doing what you're told to do. And if you think you couldn't operate a school any other way, you couldn't shepherd over a thousand children from one classroom to another unless there was this element of obedience, of respect for authority, um, of discipline that was kind of inherent in the structure. But obviously we can see how, how both the attributes that are emphasised, or the values, if you like, that are emphasised, and the way in which these values are enforced have changed over time. So if you, I'm being really stereotypical, I'm probably being very historically lazy here, but if you think about the kind of stereotype of the Victorian school with lots of children sat in rows and corporal punishment, it's clearly a, a more, a, well, a, a different set of, of values, much more emphasis on obedience of not speaking until you're spoken to than if you think about the stereotypical primary classroom from the 1970s or 80s um, with tables arranged in little clusters and children sat around and the emphasis on group work and collaboration with each other, which wouldn't have been there in the stereotypical Victorian times. Um, so I want to go from there to argue that um, the left, I made this point at the Battle of Ideas and I've just been thinking about it a bit more since, I think the left traditionally, if you go back to the 60s, the 70s, um, were always quite critical, um, quite upfront in being critical of this socialising role um, that schools played. Um, so if you think about books like Learning to Labour by Paul Willis, uh, Louis Althusser, who referred to um, schools and education as being part of the ideological state apparatus, um, de-schooling society uh, by Ivan Illich. You know, there's always this idea that that socialising aspect of education was uh, certainly something to be suspicious of, that it perhaps, uh, this idea of training workers to exist, future workers to be obedient citizens within a capitalist system, um, that you are training future generations of um, obedient citizens to respect the authority of the state. And I think there was often a, a critique of that that came from the left were quite suspicious of, of this role that schools played. 
Um, and this, you know, you can tell me whether I'm wrong with this or not, and I promise you this will be the first and only anecdote I give tonight. But something it also made me think about was that I think perhaps from working class people, there was also a bit of a suspicion of the authority of the teacher, of the teacher as a representative of the state. So suddenly going back to my own experience of growing up, very middle class mother, but very, very working class father, and being the most perfectly obedient Catholic school girl who, you know, lapped up everything that was put in front of me. And then going home, um, my father would teach me this song, have me sing this song. I promise I won't sing it for you. And apologies, it's probably massively offensive to all the teachers in the room. But the lyrics were, <laughs> the words were, build a bonfire, build a bonfire, put the teachers on the top, put Mrs. Bradley, who was my most dear, beloved teacher, in the middle, and we'll burn the bloody lot. <laughs> you know, those were the words. And I was just thinking back about this, I was thinking, Bizarre, because with you know, with the benefit of hindsight, obviously there's a massive contradiction there between going home and singing songs about burning teachers on a bonfire, and going to school and being perfectly obedient. Um, never have never dreamt of singing that song at school or acting on it. I'm, I hasten to add, but I think from my father's point of view, there was the teacher was essentially a representative of the state, the, certainly the equivalent of social workers. And you didn't let them in your house and you didn't, you, you respected them, but you kept them at a distance. Um, and, but I think the important point was that never, in my experience anyway, never blew over into actual conflict. I think, I think my father wasn't alone in having this disregard and, and kind of disrespect for teachers in private. But it, it was very much a, a private thing. It, it didn't. He would never have dreamt of going to the school and arguing face to face with a teacher. He was as scared of them, if you like, as I was. You know, they were clearly figures of authority in the local community, um, as well as being figures of authority within the school. And so I was thinking about. I'm sure lots of people here saw it. The letter that Catherine Burble Singh um, wrote. To, the, to parents essentially saying, if you want to support your child's education, you need to support the teachers. And I, I think if you go back 30 years, it would be unheard of that a head teacher would even need to say this or certainly not write such a letter. It would be absolutely taken for granted that parents would back up the teacher rather than backing up their own child, um, whatever they thought of teachers in general or teachers in specific in the private realm. And I think the teacher was recognised as an authority figure and, and their their ability to exercise authority, I think, came from their own knowledge, if you like, their, the fact that they had access to... Uh, an intellectual and a cultural realm that the, the parents and the pupils didn't have access to. Um, and the exercise of authority was seen as a means to an end and the end of, of getting an education, if you like. And however much there may have been fear and suspicion of teachers, the ultimate goal of, of getting an education was something that many parents aspired to for their children. Um, and it wasn't seen as an arbitrary thing. It, it, it may, sometimes, again, in private might have been, but essentially it was, it was considered a means to an end. Um, so then you start thinking about, well, what's changed? What's happened? And I want to put forward that, that two, two main things have changed. 
I think the first thing is, and it's something I know we've discussed a lot in the education forum, I think teachers themselves have abandoned the idea that education is a project um, that's explicitly connected to knowledge um, and the pursuit of knowledge. I think education has, first of all, again, going back maybe 20, 25 years now, probably far longer than that, thinking about the Warnock report, rather than being centred around knowledge, education has become a project centred around children um, and the child has come to the fore and the development, the personal development of the child um, with perhaps thrown into that mix then skills or learning to learn or the mental well-being of the child. And I think the idea that as a teacher, your primary focus is the development of the child rather than the transmission of knowledge makes a fundamental change in the uh, understanding of the project of education. And just thinking of this then in terms of the culture wars, um, it creates a clash. Immediately you say, immediately you say that the primary aim of education is the child. You set yourself up in conflict because previously it would have been considered the parents' primary aim is the development of the child. So now you've got two different groups saying that their primary aim is the development of the child, both teachers and parents then competing for this role. Um, I think to come right up to date, you know, we can look at the impact of the GOV reforms, which I think have certainly provided a lot more content and perhaps a lot more complexity, difficulty into the educational sphere. But I think having more complexity and more content is very different to teachers really owning um, the project of education in relation to the transmission of knowledge or a desire and a passion to pass on their understanding in relation to a particular subject. So I, think, I guess, you know, to give a concrete example of what I'm getting at here, if you think of a, a very, very basic job interview question that anybody wanting to go on a PGCE or have their first job in teaching or maybe even their 10th job in teaching would be asked is, well, why do you want to, why do you want to be a teacher? Why do you want to do this job? And there's clearly, as anybody who's been to more than one job interview in the education world knows, there's clearly a right and a wrong answer to that question. And because I just love children, um, because I'm really interested in, in children, it seemed for a very, very long time to be the right answer. Um, because I just love my subject, it was very much seen as, in my experience anyway, seen as the wrong answer. Um, so I think... By doing that, you, you create this idea where the idea that your, your project of education is geared around the transmission of knowledge becomes something, it becomes a, mi a, a kind of minor goal to the much bigger goal of, of child development. So I think that's the first thing. Teachers themselves have abandoned the project of knowledge at the heart of education. So, so in, in that sense, they give away the source of their own authority. They're saying we're, we're almost the equals of parents and our concern about the children. You know, we, we don't have anything special about us in relation to our subject knowledge. So why, how, on what basis does our authority in the community rest? Um, so I think that's the first thing. The second thing that I think is really important that we connect to that um, is the 
Okay, Boomer. Um, the breakdown of generational authority more broadly. So the idea that um, older people are necessarily in and of themselves a kind of a, a, a source of authority or, or people who should be respected. Nowadays, I think it's much more the case that older people are seen almost as guilty um, for messing up the planet, um, for carrying on or allowing capitalism to develop into a, a destructive way or just not creating this socially equal and tolerant society that older people are actually figures to be blamed rather than figures to be respected. Um, and I think in some ways this suspicion of, of older people, more broadly kind of suspicion of adults and adults in authority becomes something which is is quite legitimate. Um, so rather than older people, adults, having something to teach younger people based on their experience, their wisdom, um, if not their subject expertise, it's almost seen as completely the opposite nowadays, that, that adults really need to just shut up and listen, that we have something to learn from younger people, that it's it's children who should be teaching us oldies about how to protect the environment, how to be nice to one another, what gender really means, uh, how to conduct relationships. We should be listening to young people rather than um, inflicting our outdated, embarrassingly old-fashioned views onto children. So when you've got those two things, you've, you've kind of hollowed out the purpose of, of the transmission of knowledge and you've made your purpose more centred around the child rather than the pursuit of knowledge. And you've said that as adults, we have nothing positive to offer you. Um, we want to learn from you instead. And yet still you use the school as an institution um, as really now as part of this suspicion quite Again, yeah, I think I made before. Really, the the school becomes quite unique now in society in being almost the only place in which children come into contact with adults who they're not related to. So, if you think again, if you you know in danger of romanticising the past, and I'm sure it's, it's not a romantic thing, but if you go back kind of twenty, thirty years, and you think of ways in which children came into contact with adults who they were not related to, perhaps through church or faith communities, perhaps through neighbours and people who lived nearby, um, you know, perhaps through scouts, guides, voluntary organisations, um, again, just, just through regular streets or, or perhaps through Saturday jobs or paper rounds. There seemed to be a lot more ways in which children came into contact with adults. And, and it's almost as if that's gone now. And so more onus comes on the school as being this place where the, one of the, the kind of very, very few institutions where children develop this relationship with adults. So I think what we've created, in effect, is uh, in conjunction is a, a hollowing out of the, the fundamental purpose of a school in terms of, of socialising a new generation through the project of education. Um, so we, we need to create a new role then for schools. And I think that new role has been based on um, not a relationship to the past, 
in terms of transmitting a knowledge, an, an existing knowledge of what, what was known, if you like, in relation to particular subjects, but rather about promoting a new model of citizenship. To, so rather than trying to create citizens for an existing society through passing on a knowledge of, of the past or collective wisdom, creating um, and shaping a new society, using children to shape a new society, to shape a, a future as, as teachers would like it to be. So again, to come back to the example that you're talking about, Kevin, in terms of shaping the planet, you know, I think this goes above and beyond any government directive or any national curriculum goal. It really opens the way for individual teachers with their own ideas and their own priorities, be it Me Too, feminism, and the environment, um, mental health, whatever it is, that the space is open to, for teachers to step in and think about changing either the using either the subjects that they teach or the kind of PSHE classes, the extra um, curricular content that happens within the school day, uh, using that as an opportunity to shape a, a future society. Um, and immediately you do that, you push schools into a more contested domain because there could be uh, some degree of consensus about the past. But in terms of visions of future society, it immediately becomes far more um, contested. We don't all agree about what we would like a future society to look like. Um, it becomes based far more, far more on teachers' own individual values. Um, so I think schools still very much play a role in terms of socialising children, but rather than a means to an end in terms of promoting knowledge, the end becomes the child. The end becomes the child's mental well-being, the child's identity, uh, the child's emotional state. It becomes far more individualistic rather than a collective of project, if you like, of, of shaping children to exist in, in an existing society. It takes it away from education, almost into the realm of, of re-education, and from socialization, if you like, to, to social engineering or even reverse social engineering, where the, the children themselves are, are expected to go back out into the community and re-educate their parents. Um, I think, I think the, the fundamental point that I, I think just dawned on me really when I was thinking about this again yesterday is that this reverse social engineering, if you like, is, is not just part of socialization, but it, it's actively hostile to socialization. It actually um, goes against creating children to fit in as future citizens. It, it disrupts, it fundamentally disrupts what it means to be a future citizen rather than about, rather than kind of learning your place learning how to get along with others in an existing society. Uh, it's about challenging the family as an institution, for example, when you said, you know, we, we don't have parents evening, we have consultation evening. It um, says you can't assume um, from your sex that you will become a particular gender. So the idea of growing up in a particular way as a girl, growing up to be a woman, as a boy, growing up to be a man, it disrupts that way of thinking. 
it it tells children, if you like, to be suspicious of other adult of adults of of other people in society. And it, this is this is the opposite of socialization. This is about disrupting socialization. Um, so I think you can see then. Somebody doesn't like what, what type I'm of saying. demo is it? <laughs> children shaping the future, Joe. Shaking think, things up, starting the pot. Uh, so I think you see then where conflicts emerge most apparently kind of in the national newspapers and you see it on our televisions uh, between school and home. It's about the most intimate aspects, often about the most intimate aspects of our relationships. So if you think about things like diet, for example, what parents choose to feed their children in the context of, of family mealtimes or not mealtimes, but family eating, is very intimate. It's, it's the kind of one of the most private decisions you make as a family, and yet the school, by getting children to do things like keep food diaries for a week, by providing lessons on healthy eating, by saying what kind of a correct diet is supposed to be, kind of inserts that voice in the child's head that the way they're being socialised at home, the socialisation of the family, is perhaps not the best, perhaps not the correct way to be brought up. Um, by getting children to question the nature of relationships, it gets them to examine and think critically about the private sphere that they have within the home. Um, you know, you you see this through. I mean, even you know, just perhaps a, a flippant example, but even the the kind of how you dispose of rubbish in the context of your own home environment. Mm -hmm. As soon as you start telling children in the context of the school that there are right and wrong ways to dispose of rubbish, you bring a conflict then right into the heart of the family. You're setting two sets of adults, the, the parents and the teachers, in conflict with one another. Um, so you, you've really got this, this very insidious, I think, attack on on the private sphere of the home and relationships that children develop with their parents. So for this reason, like I, said, I think it's, it's the opposite of socialisation. It's a kind of de-socialising children. And yeah, very, very finally, I think I've probably had my 20 minutes, um, you know, how to resolve this tension. I, I think there's only one way to resolve this tension, and that's to refocus schools on education rather than... Um, values rather than teaching about relationships rather than teaching um, about <coughs> recycling or um, rather than teaching any kind of political goal or rather than a goal of social justice is to refocus schools on education and education is a project that's connected to knowledge but knowledge that's connected to the past if you like knowledge that's our collective wisdom uh, our collective understanding of where we're at in the world today, their intellectual birthright, I think, as Hannah Arendt puts it, uh, rather than focusing schools on um, a skills or a social justice agenda to train up children for a future society that, that doesn't exist yet and might not ever come to exist rather than predicting a, a society that or shaping a society that we want to bring into fruition 
letting children do that themselves when they're older as adults, when they're old enough to take responsibility for the world themselves on a basis of knowing stuff um, that's gone on in the past uh, rather than abandoning that project today and, and passing that on to children before they have the wisdom and the experience and the maturity to properly form their own ideas about how they want the world to be. Go on, give a round of applause.